Hey everyone, it's Victoria and I appreciate you tuning in. We try to do a barriers to service episode regularly to outline the nuanced reasons people from intersecting identities may be unable or choose not to seek resources after experiencing interpersonal violence or IPV. The purpose of these episodes is twofold. One, to validate the experiences of marginalized survivors and help them identify options as they move forward in their healing journeys, and to name barriers for marginalized people so privileged folks can better understand what impacts people's choices without projecting their own ways of knowing and being onto other people. In this episode, We will focus on the many reasons immigration status and national origin may be barriers to service for survivors. Then we will hear from Penny Gonzalez Soto, an immigration attorney at Student Legal Services here on campus. Please know that this episode focuses on immigration and nationality in a U.S. context and is not intended to provide an exhaustive list of barriers. There are likely many more reasons people do not seek out services than I have time to mention here, and every experience is valid and worthy of compassion and support. Also, immigration policy is often in flux, so the following information could very well change in the near future. Now, there are many reasons human beings choose to cross borders, as they have for centuries. Some cross borders to seek new opportunities, some to be closer to family, and some for their own safety. The reasons for immigration are complex and as individual as the people themselves. We know that immigration and nationality are hot topics on an international scale. One such topic we're hearing a lot about in the States today involved detention centers. Years ago, Many Mexican immigrants came to the United States for seasonal work under U.S.-approved programs because their labor was necessary for U.S. agriculture. Programs such as the Bracero Program allowed immigrants to enter the U.S. for seasonal work, then easily return home to their families until the next year. This program lasted for nearly 25 years, then was axed because of concerns over working conditions. But agricultural jobs remained and remain necessary, as well as the labor of the individuals engaging with it. But immigrant people working the fields were and are subject to increased harm from employers and more difficulty with seasonal and cyclical movement over the border. And now we have thousands of people from Latin America including children incarcerated inside of crowded and unsanitary facilities by the U.S. government for attempting to cross the U.S.-Mexico border. Most of these humans fled their homes in Mexico and Central America because of safety concerns. Imagine leaving behind everything you know and love because you're unsafe in your own home, then walking thousands of miles seeking safety in a difficult and sometimes dangerous journey to a country that is hostile toward people who look and speak like you. It's hard for many U.S. citizens to imagine these circumstances because we have the privilege of not needing to consider them. I am constantly in awe 
of the bravery and courage demonstrated by the human beings crossing or attempting to cross our southern border. Our current presidential administration has issued new rules, barring folks from claiming asylum inside our southern border, regardless of their reasons for seeking refuge. Reports state that many women and children being detained have been sexually assaulted while in U.S. custody, many of them by U.S. officials. The sexual abuse experienced by women, children, and members of the LGBTQIA community is rampant in detention centers and has been going on for a long time. There have also been several illness outbreaks in detention centers, including COVID-19, as well as family separations and child deaths. These are truly horrifying conditions for human beings to live in. And to think this is taking place in our own country is nothing less than shameful. This topic is but one example of the current climate for immigrants in the U.S., and it highlights barriers to seeking IPV services. Some women, children, and members of the LGBTQIA community were abused prior to or while immigrating to the United States. There are many instances of sexual assault perpetrated by coyotes who help immigrants enter the U.S. And many immigrants who are detained by Border Patrol report experiences of sexual assault by U.S. officials in detention centers or while in U.S. custody. People detained in U.S. custody who have also been abused by their captors or anyone else and are still being held in custody have little agency to advocate for any need, let alone interpersonal violence services. Even if they were able to leave detention centers, they likely wouldn't know where to go for support in a country that is both unfamiliar and hostile. Undocumented statuses go beyond detention centers, and these folks experience barriers as well. First, I want to name that I intentionally use the term undocumented instead of alien or illegal because human beings are not aliens, they're people, and using this term dehumanizes them, which helps justify or excuse violent behavior against people with undocumented statuses, as we have seen at our border and in detention centers. Also, the term illegal is neither neutral nor accurate because human beings aren't illegal. They have names and hopes and dreams that deserve to be seen and respected. Given that our current president began his campaign by describing Mexican immigrants as rapists and, quote, bringing crime, the term illegal is even more problematic because its association takes on larger connotations than immigration choices. It is worthy of note that immigrant populations actually commit crimes at lower levels compared to the general U.S. population. It's important to always remember that human beings, adults and children, are at the heart of the immigration debate. Now, immigrants of all documentation statuses account for around 13.6% of the total U.S. population. According to the Pew Research Center, the estimated number of undocumented immigrants currently residing in the United States ranges from 3.2 to 3.6 percent of the total U.S. population. Undocumented simply means that a person born in a different country migrated to, resides in, and oftentimes works in the United States but does not have legal documentation of their presence in the U.S., like a green card or visa. Humans with undocumented statuses come to the United States for a number of reasons, 
including those already mentioned, and not all of them cross the southern U.S. border. Undocumented immigrants come from a variety of places outside of Latin America, although we hear much less about them than our neighbors to the south. Contrary to popular belief, Working people with undocumented statuses pay taxes into federal programs and are not allowed to access or even apply for federal benefits, such as food stamps or cash assistance, and many have been waiting years for a documented status. We also know that it takes longer for someone from Latin America to obtain citizenship than a person from a white majority country, like Ireland, for example. As Trump said in 2018, he wants less immigration from, quote, shithole countries and more folks from places like Norway. We can certainly infer what that means. Undocumented immigrants also live in fear of arrest and deportation by Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, because of their statuses. Deportation may mean that folks with undocumented statuses will be torn from family members in the U.S., lose their income, return to violent conditions in their countries of origin, and or experience violence from U.S. officials. Discrimination and fears may be increased for immigrant parents because of legitimate fears of being separated from their children. There have been cases, even locally in Greeley, Colorado, of children returning home from school to see that their parents were gone. Undocumented immigrants are also scared to use resources that would benefit their health, such as going to a hospital or therapist, because of fears including reporting and deportation. Survivors we work with here at the WGAC have described feeling fearful because they may be deported if they come forward seeking to protect their safety from their perpetrators. These fears are totally justified because there are many cases of survivors being arrested at U.S. courthouses during relationship violence hearings. Although ICE policy states that officers should, quote, generally avoid enforcement actions in courthouses, end quote. In fact, according to the Immigrant Defense Project, there has been a 1,200% increase in arrests and attempted arrests in and around New York State courthouses from 2016 through 2017. What's worse is that some attorneys speculate that tips are given to ICE by abusers because they know the exact date and time of court hearings, which means that ICE has likely helped perpetrators further abuse their victims. For example, in one North Carolina case, a woman and her 16-year-old son were in court because of a misdemeanor complaint filed by their perpetrator, and both of them were arrested by ICE just as the woman was going to testify against her abuser. In another case, according to a report by the former president of the Massachusetts Bar Association, one victim hid from ICE in a courthouse bathroom which resulted in her case being dismissed because she did not appear in the courtroom. This woman was in court in the first place because her husband strangled her in front of her children. I can go on and on about different cases, and it's truly horrific that these are the experiences of undocumented people in our country. As you can imagine, the trauma associated with IPV is increased by fear, arrest, and detainment, which creates barriers and further suffering in silence. And these are the experiences of people who have come forward and asked for help, like society tells them to do. In these cases, the U.S. justice system has failed the very people they are supposed to protect. Recently, the Trump administration redefined the already existing public charge policy 
which is essentially an income-based requirement for immigrants seeking green cards and certain visas in the U.S. Previously, the Clinton-era rule defined a public charge as people who rely on cash assistance, public benefits, and limited green cards and certain visas for these folks. However, the new policy scrapped this definition and expanded the definition of a public charge, which is now written as a person who the government determines is relying or may come to rely on federal public assistance, such as food stamps or government housing programs. Although it's interesting to note that I haven't found information on exactly how officials make these determinations. The policy is also very restrictive on the time frame of people receiving benefits. Trump's administration defended the new restrictions as a way to ensure immigrants are, quote, self-sufficient. Critics say that this is essentially a wealth test designed to bar immigration of poorer people from developing nations. They feel these new restrictions will shut America's doors on impoverished folks and people of color. Barriers to service also exist for people who live in the United States as asylees, refugees, U visa holders, T visa holders, or who have permanent resident status in the U.S. Asylees are folks who are already in the U.S. and have legitimate fear of violence or death if they return to their home countries. The asylum process is a lengthy and time-consuming one, during which people experience fear of their application being denied and or fear of deportation. Even if someone applies for asylum with evidence, if it is deemed insufficient, they can be denied. Now, refugees are people who have been forced out of their home countries in order to escape war, persecution, or natural disaster. Again, this is a lengthy process, and many refugees live in camps abroad for years before being allowed to enter the U.S. They also experience a lengthy vetting process to ensure that they are safe and law-abiding people. U-Visas are for folks and their immediate family members who have experienced violence while residing in the United States and are willing to support law enforcement officials in the investigation and prosecution of violent perpetrators. They can attain lawful permanent residence or a green card, but this is not a path towards citizenship, and the impermanence of a green card may discourage people from seeking resources out of fear of making waves or being noticed. Immigrants may also petition for a visa without their abuser's knowledge under the Immigration and Nationality Act as amended by the Violence Against Women Act. But this option is limited to certain spouses, children, and parents of U.S. citizens and green card holders. T-visas may be available for people who have experienced human trafficking as well as their immediate family members. A T-Visa allows these individuals to remain in and work temporarily in the United States, typically if they report the crime and support law enforcement in the investigation and or prosecution of human traffickers. Now, many of these individuals I just mentioned experienced significant trauma that led to their documented status in the U.S., and some of them experience more trauma as related to IPV. These traumatic experiences are further compounded for people who are immigrants of color in the United States, especially those from Latin America and the Middle East, because they also experience barriers and violence due to the racism inherent in our country.
If you didn't catch all that, it's totally okay because immigration and documentation statuses are super complex and sometimes confusing. It also lets us know that our immigration policies are far from perfect and we shouldn't pass judgment on people who seek to enter our country. We should also seek to become allies for immigrants and support them in their journeys because they are difficult ones. Immigration isn't just a complex issue that affects people in other places. It also impacts students right here at CSU. There are students at CSU of varying documentation statuses. For example, CSU is home to many DACA students, which stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. These are individuals who entered the United States without documentation as children in circumstances beyond their control and have grown up in the United States. This status does not currently provide a path towards citizenship either, but it does allow people with DACA status to be lawfully present in the U.S. without threat of deportation. And it allows them to apply for driver's licenses and work permits in the U.S. People with DACA status may apply to renew their statuses as well, but our presidential administration has chosen not to accept any new applications. What's more, DACA students may also have family members without DACA status, which can be scary because of ICE and the potential to lose family members to deportation. DACA is also a status that must be renewed every two years with high legal fees. And we know that DACA applications are being turned down more frequently under this administration. If DACA is denied, then the person will find themselves with an undocumented status without the work permit and protections of DACA. In 2012, President Obama signed an executive order called the DREAM Act, which stands for Development, Relief, and Education for Alien Minors. This allows a pathway toward U.S. citizenship for young people who go to college and or serve in the military while maintaining a good record, although they are not eligible for federal student aid and, in some states, DACA students must pay out-of-state tuition. DACA students utilizing the DREAM Act are often called DREAMers, and CSU is privileged to be home to many of these exemplary individuals. Of course, the DREAM Act isn't perfect because it doesn't offer employment opportunities or federal financial aid for students, but it's certainly a start. But DACA has been under threat by the current administration, which has caused CSU's DREAMers to experience a great deal of fear and anxiety. For example, DACA applications, including renewals, are being turned down more frequently since Donald Trump took office. This is scary for students because they are known to the system by their DACA status and they could be barred from completing an education they already started. Similarly to humans of other undocumented statuses, existing fears of deportation in addition to relentless racism toward folks of color, act as barriers to service for DACA students on a systemic and interpersonal level. For example, in 2016, self-described conservative students here at CSU erected a, quote, free speech wall on the plaza shortly after Donald Trump began advocating for a border wall. This was understandably super upsetting for dreamers at CSU, but the conservative students refused to take it down, and they rebuilt it once other students dismantled it. This was one of the many acts of overt racism that has taken place on CSU's campus, and these types of behaviors act as barriers to service for survivors. 
For dreamers who are also survivors here at CSU, please know that there are resources in place to support you in your journey. WGAC advocates can help connect you to many different resources, both on and off campus, that will help you even if you're not a U.S. citizen. Student Legal Services is also here to help answer questions regarding your rights as a dreamer. And CSU has demonstrated their commitment to DACA students by assisting them financially during the COVID-19 pandemic. International students on our campus also experience barriers to service in the aftermath of IPV. Many of these students arrived to CSU with an F-1 student visa which is required to enter the United States for school. F-1 visa holders may come with their families and are not allowed to work off campus in their first year. Additionally, international students studying on an F-1 visa are not allowed to access public benefits through the federal government, such as food stamps or cash assistance. Although they can access some resources, like the Food Bank of Larimer County, WIC, which stands for Women, Infants, and Children, and some CSU and private scholarships. As with DREAMers, international students are not Pell eligible, meaning they are not allowed to access federal financial aid. This can act as a barrier for people who are trying to pay Fort Collins rental rates and support their families while also studying at CSU. The lack of benefits and financial aid support may mean food insecurity, housing concerns, and more. For DACA and international student survivors, the barriers to access may become more pronounced in the aftermath of interpersonal violence. Because a trauma often exacerbates an already difficult situation for students who are simply trying to obtain an education. Certain documentation statuses intersect with IPV in ways that may increase trauma and impede academic success and retention. Also, other barriers aside from documentation statuses exist for immigrants because cultural barriers may make it difficult for a survivor to come forward after violence occurs. For example, some cultures discourage people from reporting relationship violence or sexual assault. They may be unsure of where to turn for help, or they may be afraid of being discriminated against in IPV centers or in the legal system. Language barriers also present challenges for survivors because they may be unable or fear being unable to communicate with advocates and counselors about their situation. The WGAC, as well as some other community resources, have invested in LanguageLink, a telephone translation service. Students are also free to bring a translator with them to advocacy appointments. People from certain nations and religions also experience elevated instances of discrimination in the United States due to our history of racism and white supremacy, which act as barriers to service for survivors of interpersonal violence. For example, since 9-11, Islamophobia has become an increasingly bigger issue on a national scale. The social narrative has caused many U.S. citizens to believe the stereotype of the Islamic terrorist, which has led to many instances of discrimination and hate crimes against humans who practice the Islamic faith. These are acts of domestic terrorism that are rooted in racist ideology and white supremacy. We have even seen our current presidential administration ban people from certain Islamic nations from entering the United States, even when nobody from these countries were involved in the 9-11 attacks. Many women in hijab have also experienced discrimination or have had their IPV experiences minimized by gender-based 
and religious stereotypes. Again, this is not an exhaustive list of barriers to service that exist for immigrants in the United States, but xenophobia, which means a dislike of or prejudice against people from other countries, has caused a great deal of pain for human beings who immigrate to the United States and impacts their ability to access resources after violence occurs. It must also be named that many of the service providers in nonprofit and state-run IPV organizations are, myself included, U.S.-born white women. This gives us unearned racial privilege, as well as internalized biases that live in the foundations of our understanding of the world and the people in it, which act as barriers for people of color as well as immigrants. To my fellow and future service providers, it is important that, as a very first step, we do our own work in understanding our own biases, as well as the barriers to service that exist for marginalized people, so we can offer comprehensive care to everyone. We must also think about our language choices. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I intentionally use the term undocumented, because I choose not to contribute to the violence enacted on immigrants in our country. If you still use terms like alien or illegal or any other word that contributes to the oppression of human beings, consider asking yourself why you use these terms, what they're rooted in, and then eradicate them from your vocabulary while remembering that there are hundreds of more steps to be taken around dismantling your privilege and in helping other white people dismantle theirs. Keep in mind that everyone, regardless of documentation status or any other identity, deserves access to services and the tools necessary to heal from interpersonal violence and trauma. Now, I've thrown a lot of information out for you to consider. We will now hear from Penny Gonzalez Soto, a staff immigration attorney at Student Legal Services here on campus. Hey, Penny, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you could join us. I'm very excited to be talking with you today. Thank you for inviting me. Definitely. We're, I'm so happy you could lend your expertise to this podcast. I think it's a super important topic. Absolutely. All right. So first, Penny, if could you please tell us about some of your salient identities so listeners can get a better sense of who they're hearing from? Okay. You know, the first thing that for me, I worked very hard. So the first thing in terms of identity for me, especially at CSU is I'm an attorney, right? Mm -hmm. And for me, what that really means, I'm a person who listens. Mm -hmm. That is for me, my, the biggest part of my job is I listen to what somebody wants to come in and talk about. The other really important part for me is that when you come and talk to me, the expectation is that what you tell me is confidential. And I think that's very important for students at CSU to understand and to know they do have somebody who they can go talk to. The other, you know, identities for me that are very important is I am a part of the Latinx community. Mm. I come with that cultural background. I come with very different traditions. I come with um, oftentimes it means uh, uh, another language that I speak. So that is a very deep core of who I am. The other couple of them is I'm a single mother. And mm-hmm. so I come with a very different perspective as an attorney and 
um, as a single mother and looking at students and, and understanding where that student is moving forward and why they may be coming to student legal services instead of calling their parents for assistance, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I think is um, important that that sort of service is available to students. And then the other part of me is that I'm actually a first-generation college student. Hmm. I was the first person in my family to go to college. And at this point, I do have a sister and a brother who have both gone to college. But it was a very uh, both exciting and unique but a difficult situation when I decided to go to college because I really didn't have anybody to guide me forward. And so that resonates with me always when we have students that come into student legal services and asking questions to remember that not necessarily the first generation but that these are very simply things that have never been encountered because I lived through that Mm. I think in a much deeper way. Thank you so much for sharing that and for your openness and being very upfront about those identities. I think that's really important for listeners to to hear And it also sounds like you lend a very particular expertise, which is awesome. I hope so. Yeah. I hope it works out that way. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Um, Could you tell us um, about your role here on campus a little bit more? Absolutely. So I came to CSU full-time August of, end of August, actually August 26th of 2019. So I started at CSU the same day that students started classes. Oh, great. But I was contracting with Student Legal Services for a couple years before that as an immigration attorney. Mm. But I'm a staff attorney in Student Legal Services. And so my job is really counseling students on a variety of topics. And some of the things that I've dealt with so far um, in this past school year, we do a lot of landlord tenant things. So we review leases, we're helping students deal with issues in their housing, like repairs or security deposit concerns. I also have started to take on some of the family law cases. So I will counsel individuals on, we're looking at doing a divorce or parental responsibilities or parenting time. I do contract reviews. So sometimes students who are at the point of graduating from CSU are getting um, employment contracts. And so we'll help review those. We do a lot of consumer issues, whether it's you purchased a vehicle that broke down on you immediately and how do you deal with that? Mm. We also deal with insurance claims and collection processes, all things that are very hard to navigate and trying to figure out those processes. I personally specialize in immigration law. So in addition to all the other things that Student Legal Services deals with, I also do the immigration side of it. As you um, may be aware, we do have three attorneys in Student Legal Services. Mm -hmm. So we can actually handle any topic. I mean, pretty much anything that comes into that office, one of the three of us can handle. The one thing that we do not do, we do not advise on tax issues, though. That's the one area that... um, neither of the three of us have delved into. Mm. I will tell you that our office is 100% confidential. We function the same way any other law office functions and you come into our office and everything that you tell us is 100% confidential, which I think is really important for students to understand Yes, that um, you can come in safely and talk to us. The other thing to remember about student legal services 
and my role is that we do not provide legal representation. So that means we're not coming in or we're not going into court with a student. We're not going to a legal hearing for a student. Our role is really to advise and counsel and guide, again, listen to what the student is hoping to get out of or how to deal with or what resolution they're looking for. We're helping the students strategize. If we come across a case that we feel really does need to have legal counsel, we're mm-hmm. very honest with the student. We let them know this is not something you can go forward on your own. And we can definitely refer to a local attorney in the Fort Collins area that works with that particular issue, but more importantly, has worked with students before. It's really important to to find individuals who are attorneys in Fort Collins that have that particular experience. And then, of course, if that student decides to go forward with that private attorney, payment to that attorney is dealt with privately and and the student has to handle that. Mm -hmm. Sure. That's amazing to hear about all of the different things that student legal services can provide to students. I think it's really important, as you mentioned, with the confidentiality piece, definitely, but all of those other services, it's awesome. Absolutely. And with that, um, in the realm of immigration, what kind of support do you or have you offered to students at CSU? So what's great is student legal services and CSU have recognized the fact that immigration law is something that affects a large portion of the students, a large percentage of the students at CSU, not only students who are in perhaps a permanent status and are looking to do citizenship or a student who is undocumented, mm-hmm. but also international students. So some of the things that we've tackled um, this past semester was one thing is DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Mm-hmm. The, it's a temporary status that students have, and I've helped them through renewal processes and moving things forward to make sure that they continue on with their status. One of the other things we do in the realm of immigration is very simply planning for the future. Mm. DACA students is a temporary status. Oftentimes, um, there are other statuses that, for instance, F1 students who are students, um, international students who are here just to study, mm-hmm. planning for the future. So again, we work with the international students. We also work with students who are applying for what is called adjustment of status, which is permanent residency, permanent status in the United States. Mm. We also help students who are looking to become U.S. citizens and do what is called the naturalization process. So I've been doing immigration for just under 20 years, and so I can advise on just about any immigration topic. If we do have a student who wants the employment side of immigration more in depth. We have an expert, an immigration attorney who specializes in the employment side and we can definitely refer to her. Mm. She actually comes in as a contract attorney during the school year once a month to meet with students who um, need that particular experience that I don't have. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I do is I have specialized for those 20 years and what are called victim immigration cases. So they're mm-hmm. VAWA cases, the Violence Against Women's Act, and U visas, which are victims of a crime visa. Yep. So that is something that I have particularly specialized for the past 20 years. One of the wonderful things about student legal services, we take a holistic view of the immigration cases. Mm-hmm. So I have known from my experience for the 20 years that students may not know 
the full history of how they arrived into the United States mm-hmm. or how they ended up with the status that they that they have or the lack of that status. So when students are comfortable and they come in and they want to meet with us about an immigration case, and if they're comfortable with it and they're willing to allow it, I will encourage them to include a person who knows that history to be part of the appointment. Mm. And it's usually by telephone, oftentimes a parent, but sometimes it's not. It could be an older sibling. And the reason that we like to do that is I want to be able to truly evaluate is there any possible path for this individual to legalize their status? Mm. And so when I include that other person, I'm able to evaluate the entire family situation. And what I'm searching for in those evaluations is any way for that student to legalize. And it could be, for instance, maybe their parent had a pending immigration case for the past 20 years and that the student might have a benefit from that petition because they were a child when that petition was submitted. Mm. I have I have had in my career a handful of cases where I discovered in a holistic view that a client's grandparent was actually a US citizen. Oh, wow. Who then under the current immigration under those immigration laws at that time passed that citizenship on to the client's parent who then passed it on to the client. So I've had clients that turn out to be U.S. citizens, and it may take us a few months or a couple of years to gather all the evidence to prove that. Mm-hmm. But lo and behold, all we have to do is go in and process a U.S. passport. So it does take a lot of work to figure that out, mm-hmm. but it's amazing when it happens, when oh, you I discover bet. those hidden paths that nobody's thought to ask. That's incredible. Yeah. The other, the other part of the services that I think are very important for students is just that full immigration evaluation for the student. I have found that many students have never fully looked, their parents may have at some point in the past done an evaluation with an attorney, Mm -hmm. but the student just doesn't have that information. So I think it's very important for that student to understand how does the immigration process work? What are the ways that a person can actually legalize their status? And how do you, if you have a potential way in the future, whether it's three years from now or five years from now, how do you protect that benefit in the future? So how do you mm-hmm. make sure that you continue to be eligible for that status in the future? I also want them to understand how to recognize when that avenue opens up to them in the future. Mm. It's very, it's a very important thing to just simply know what it is that you're dealing with. It's that information empowers you to be able to strategize for the future. That's a great point. Thank you. Thank you. As you may already know, the WGAC works with survivors of interpersonal violence, which we understand to be relationship violence, sexual assault and harassment, and stalking. And you kind of touched on this when you talked about VAWA, but could you tell us a little bit about how, in your experience, interpersonal violence intersects with immigration for survivors? So, as we talked before, I specialize in the Violence Against Women Act cases and then Mm. later the U visa cases. And what, I mean, both of those programs are founded in the knowledge 
knowledge that the majority of us had already had, but that immigration took a while to to um, acknowledge mm. that a person's immigration status is oftentimes the tool that is used to maintain somebody in that abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. That is as simple as, okay, go ahead and call the police. Um, who are they going to believe when they come? Are they going to believe me, who's the U.S. citizen? Or are they going to believe you? So then what right. happens? The police are not called. The U visa was designed, VAWA requires that there be an actually family relationship. So there has to be a marriage or you have to be related by blood of some sort Hmm. in order for a VAWA case to work. The U visa was designed to address when there was a crime committed against an undocumented person and the fear of calling the police was preventing that individual from cooperating or even calling the police, right? Mm -hmm from preventing that particular case. And so that began to help individuals who were not in, for instance, a a couple that's not married. Mm -hmm. The U visa, you could not do a VAWA case if there was, the police were called, you couldn't couldn't qualify for a VAWA case, but under the U visa, you could qualify because there wasn't that family relationship requirement. Mm. So it allowed when there was a significant other, but not the actual marriage or the family relationship in existence, or even a stranger in that sense. So the immigration intersects in allowing those individuals to continue to abuse immigrants and using the immigration status as the tool to maintain them in the relationship, but also these particular immigration laws empowers once you apply and you're approved it empowers you to be able to move forward in your life without the fear of this individual coming back i think it or the fear of this individual maintaining that power over you right Mm -hmm. so it is a situation of immigration being used as a horrible tool against survivors, right? And the fear of abandoning your child, right? Because often the families are, we have mixed families. And so you have uh, one parent who's a US citizen, one parent who's undocumented, you have a child who's born in the United States. And that fear of being separated from your child was the other tool that's used of mm-hmm. that I'm going to get placed into deportation proceedings. My child's going to be left with this parent who is being abusive. Mm-hmm. So it is um, a hard situation to to deal with. The, the thing that I can say in that VAWA in the U visas I'm, I'm thankful that they exist. Yeah. What hurts me about both of those programs is that it does cause the victim to have to relive the abuse. Sure. And both of them require statements by the individual who's applying for that benefit to talk about the abuse and how they were abused. And I think that is depending on how far out you are from the abuse I think that is a very hard thing for most people to have to do when those wounds are still, and not physical wounds, just 
Um, it could be mental abuse, sentimental abuse, um, verbal abuse, when those wounds are still so fresh to have to think about applying under VAWA or the U visa, I think it's very difficult. And VAWA doesn't have a timeline. U visas, depending on the county that you're living, oftentimes has a timeline. In Well County, which is where I reside and where I did had my private practice, you have to apply within five years mm. of that case being opened. Um, and if it closes before that five years, you may not be able to get the certifications for the U visa. Mm. So it does require you to move quickly um, at the beginning. So it's been, you know, uh, uh, the hardest cases, but I think the most rewarding cases, very honestly, sure. I've had in this situation, I've had clients, my youngest client, the very beginning of my career was nine years old. Oh, wow. And she, she, we went under a VAWA case. And I've had individuals who have probably been in their 60s and their 70s um, on both VAWA cases and U visa cases. Mm. And so it is the whole breadth of it um, in terms of how immigration really does come into play for survivors. And there are important programs for people to know about, very honestly. Absolutely. And with all of that, in your experience, what's the likelihood that people will be able to access U visa or um, documentation through VAWA? So VAWA is probably, if you have that family relationship, whether it's marriage or there is an adult um, child or a parent, VAWA is the program that you want to go under. Very honestly, it has less requirements um, and will move more forward. U visas, unfortunately, now applying for a U visa requires cooperation of law enforcement or the court to do a certification. And that has become harder and harder mm -hmm. as we move forward. But this the timeline. If you're able to fulfill and actually apply for the U visa, the wait is anywhere from six to eight years right now for the U visa to be processed. Mm. There are only 10,000 U visas per year. Oh, wow. And so the backlog is too long, very honestly. And there isn't protections when a VAWA case or a U visa case are pending. There are mm. no protections at all in the meantime. So um, it is very possible. I have had many cases go through VAWA and U visas and gain their status. Hmm. But they are slowly, if not already, so backlogged. It, it oftentimes, especially for U visa cases, it seems that client, I'm not gonna hear a word for six years. Why do I apply? Right. And you know, my attitude has always been if you never apply, that clock never starts running. Mm -hmm. You never get to move forward to the front of the line. Um, and it is a benefit that if you can qualify, you should absolutely apply for it. Mm -hmm. I have never had a VAWA or U visa case denied that we applied for. 
but I also was very careful to make sure we submitted sufficient evidence from the very beginning. Mm. And I have started to see, I'm on several listservs for attorneys and especially immigration attorneys, where we are starting to see rejections or denials of U visa cases mm. for lack of evidence. And those cases take, it's a lot of work up front to submit them complete to begin with. I think sometimes individuals will submit an application with the expectation that they will fill in the gaps at a later point. That has never been my mode of moving forward. Hmm. Let's get it submitted completely with the hopes that your case will move forward a little bit quicker if need be. But it's possible. It just, it takes a, a um, painfully long time. Hmm to know whether or not you've been approved. I see. Okay. And with that, what are the financial costs and length of time? You kind of touched on that with the U visa mm -hmm. and others, but what are the financial costs and length of time involved in pursuing citizenship in particular? And in your experience, are there people who are barred from accessing this path? Okay. So citizenship or naturalization is how it's referred to in immigration mm. is a process that comes after you obtain lawful permanent residency. Mm. So lawful permanent residency is always the first step. Lawful permanent residency gives you the right to live and reside in the United States. You can travel in and out of the United States with really no issue. Those mm. cards are normally issued for 10 years at a time. And the only reason that the cards expire is to update the technology in the card. And of course, to update a picture of the mm. individual. The actual residence, even if you don't renew your permanent residency card, your residency doesn't expire. It mm. can it can be destroyed. Um, the best way to know, the best way to destroy your permanent residency is to um, have a criminal conviction, mm. right? The other way that you can choose to lose your permanent residency is permanently in the United States. And you can actually um, give up the permanent residence if you want to go live in another country because you are barred from living permanently in another country as a permanent resident, okay. as a permanent resident. Now, the cost of permanent residency can run from a ballpark of $3,000 to $8,000. Mm. And what those costs include is initial petitions by potentially a family member or an employer Mm -hmm. The actual processing costs of the permanent residency, there's a medical examination, there's biometrics that are both fingerprints and pictures. You may have to do a waiver, and sometimes that includes attorney costs. Now, the length of time to get through this process, for instance, if you are in the United States legally, you entered on a visitor visa, you come into the United States, and you actually get married to a U.S. citizen. You could apply for your permanent residence and you'd be on the lower end of this $3,000 to $8,000 estimation. Mm. And it would probably take you anywhere from 13 months to 24 months to gain your permanent residency. Mm. And you would get to do that while you're physically in the United States. Now, if you're going, if you're doing an immigration process through a sibling who's a U.S. citizen, and let's say you're from Mexico, it's going to take you more than 20 years to even get to the front of the line to get your permanent residency. And Long during time. those 20 years, there's absolutely no benefit or protection for you from immigration. Hmm. 
So you can see that the process depends on the path that you're going down and what are the eligibilities. So there are two parts to an immigration evaluation. And the first part is, do we even have a way to start a process? And these are the things that I actually do in a full immigration evaluation. So we look to see, is there a way for you to start? Most common ways you have an immediate family member who could petition for you. Mm. A family member who's a US citizen or permanent resident. Immediate meaning your spouse, your parent, your sibling, or your adult child, mm -hmm. right? That's it, that's what immediate family is. Or you can have an employer that's able to sponsor a case. And you do this initial petition and what this initial petition does for you is it preserves your place in line for all the other people in that same category waiting to legalize their status, right? So it's basically a, a, a marker in a line of people. The second part of that evaluation is what happens when it's actually your time to legalize your status? Is there something called a visa bulletin? It is issued on a monthly basis and it tells you these categories. So for instance, the best category to be in to gain your permanent residency is to be the spouse of a U.S. citizen mm -hmm. or the parent of an adult U.S. citizen mm. or the minor child of a U.S. citizen. You fall into any one of those three categories. There isn't really a waiting period other than what the processing timeline might be. But if you fall in any other category, the categories that come below those immediate relatives of U.S. citizens each have a timeline, they have a quota of visas available every year, and they're actually split up by different countries. Mm. So this visa bulletin that comes out every year says, okay, what category are you in? And where are we at in this calendar of visas? And when will it be your time? And so this calendar has to get to your petition. So the date that you did this initial petition by a family member of an employer, and has to get to that date or past, right? Mm -hmm. So if you apply today, the calendar would have to get to um, June 11, 2020 or past it in whatever category you fall in. It is okay. only at that point, right? And you're waiting two years to over 20 years, right? To get to the front of the line in this, in this waiting time. Mm -hmm. It is only at that point where immigration actually turns to the immigrant who's trying to gain a benefit to see if they're actually eligible. So you've waited a very long time, still not knowing whether or not you're gonna gain status. Mm -hmm. The kinds of things that immigration looks at for residency are things like a criminal history. Those are the kinds of things that can make a person not eligible for immigration um, status. Or have you been previously deported? Have you been in and out of the United States? Have you ever been in the United States? And how did you enter with permission or without? And they wanna know the dates and the specificity of what was going on during those travel periods. Mm -hmm. They'll look to see whether or not you're eligible for a waiver, how likely it is that a waiver would be approved. Now we have new issues of, you know, how likely are you become a public charge? So this public charge evaluation all of those things come into play only after you've gotten past this waiting period. So you can imagine if you've waited out this waiting period in the United States, that potentially there are issues because you've not had status for all of these years that you've been waiting, 
some of these issues might have arose and you might no longer be eligible for something that you've been waiting to get, right? Um, it's a very difficult process, very complicated. Now, yeah. citizenship or naturalization comes after you gain permanent residency. And it's normally available only after you've had permanent residency for five years. And it has its own requirements. First and foremost, you have to be able to read, write, and speak English. You have some exceptions that might apply to that English requirement, and it's a combination of how, you know, what is your age and how long have you been a permanent resident? There might actually be some exemptions also depending on, you know, is there a medical reason why you don't have the ability to learn or retain English? Hmm. Other um, requirements or eligibility evaluations have to do again with your criminal history since you've become a permanent resident. Have you um, tried to vote in the meantime and you weren't allowed to because you weren't a US citizen? Did you register to vote by accident? Has there been any sort of fraud or misrepresentation in your actual residency process? There's an over, um, there's a general and overwhelming evaluation about good moral character when you become a US citizen. So you can imagine all sorts of things that come back, come into good moral character. One of the examples that people don't, can't even imagine is they ask you, do you owe back taxes? Mm. So if you owe back taxes, you may not be able to do citizenship at that point. You'd have to get that tax bill paid off. And so it is the citizenship application. If anybody is ever interested in looking at how difficult it is to become a U.S. citizen, it's a form N as in Nancy, 400. And it's about 22 pages of questions. Oh, wow. And it asks you about your entire history, um, your relationship to different groups, organizations. It is a very thorough examination. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. It's a lot of information. I will tell it you, is. I have submitted a proposal for the diversity symposium okay. that really talks about those two parts of the evaluation of how does a person even start an immigration process? Cause mm -hmm. I think it is hard to grasp the concept of you have individuals who have family members who are U S citizens or perhaps permanent residents, but you still haven't gained status and understanding that, you know, this line of waiting is incredibly long. Yeah. And I don't think that, that people understand that, you know, if your only path is through a U.S. citizen brother or sister, you're waiting more than 20 years to gain status. So it isn't for lack of trying that some individuals do not have legal status in the United States. It's simply the process is broken. Hmm. I appreciate you saying that. And I think that would be a really interesting session to attend because I agree that I don't think folks fully understand the gravity or the length of time, any of that that is involved in that path. Yeah, how difficult the process really is. It really, yeah, it's very complex. So with that, is there anything else you want listeners to know? You know, I just really want to share with the listeners that I'm in student legal services to help. I'm, I'm, I want to help in any way possible. I knew actually in high school that I wanted to be an attorney. Hmm. And for me, an attorney is to help people. It is really a public service position. I, and I really want to hear from students and their families what they 
want to see student legal services do to help students. We want to know what is it, what else can we do other than all the different things that we do now. Now I will tell you, as attorneys, we are governed by rules of professional conduct and ethics, but we want to, as a team, we want to help students through those things that just happen in life. We all know when you're in school, life happens. Yeah. And we are working to guide you through those things that happen. We really want to give you the skills. So when we're guiding you through a particular problem, we're not only dealing with that particular problem, we're trying to give you the skills to address issues, other issues that come up in your life. And so we're helping students. You know, we do a, for instance, if we do a, uh, an appointment in the office, we'll pull up on our computers and show individuals What's the website that we went to to get this information? How do you research? We look at the forms together because we really want students to gain those skills because, you know, once you leave CSU, we want to, to help you and empower you to move forward in your lives. I will tell you, one of the most important things for me is how seriously Student Legal Services takes that we are a safe, confidential, welcoming place for students to come and ask questions. Mm -hmm. If your question is a legal question, we want you to come in. We're a great place to start to ask questions. And we do really strive and want also to help you. Come in with your questions. We want to be able to help you. Great. Thank you so much for your willingness to lend your expertise to the podcast and I think it's a great resource, Student Legal Services, and then you in particular for listeners that may have questions. So thank you so much for your time and thank you for your work. It's really important work. Thank you so much. And thank you again for inviting me. I think this is an amazing, important topic for individuals to know this is a service that exists at CSU. Definitely. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you again. Take care. You take care. Have a good day. Thanks, Be safe. You too. Bye-bye. That's all for this episode of We Believe You, Advocacy, Resources, and Healing Around Interpersonal Trauma. Please remember that the WGAC is here to provide support for all CSU students 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. To reach an advocate, you can call 970-492-4242. If you have feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, or want to be interviewed for the podcast, please email WGAC at colostate.edu. That's W-G-A-C at colostate.edu. For more information about advocacy and the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, go to www.wgac.colostate.edu. You can also find the WGAC on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. A big thank you to Xavier Hadley for creating the music used in this podcast and to our partnership with KCSU here at Colorado State University. For more KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Thank you so much for listening.